Last week, we spent some time talking about some things that are not evangelism. I think many times in an effort to help people understand what something is, it can be helped to kind of explode their thinking, kind of stir up the rust in the heart, right, with regard to some traditional thoughts about what something is that are actually wrong in an effort to pave the way for understanding what is right. And so we looked at the scripture to determine what evangelism is. But I gave you a list of eight things last week. I'll I'll go through them briefly here that are not evangelism. Number one, pragmatic recruitment. Doing that which will get people in the doors. Many times it's entertainment-based. It's intended to build the church role by doing what seems to work. I call it Sunday morning sensationalism. There's little or no effort to exalt God nor to equip the saints, but everything is focused on getting people in the door by a bait-and-switch method so as to give them a message that they really didn't want to hear before they got there and trick them into some sort of decision so as to build the role, the church role. That's pragmatic recruitment, doing what seems to work. Number two, we talked about fleshly decisionism. Fleshly decisionism, which utterly and completely ignores the doctrine of total depravity. Do we believe or do we not believe what God has said in his word about the natural born condition of man that every thought and intent of his heart is only evil continually? That's Genesis 6.5. So fleshly decisionism pressures dead, totally depraved souls into some kind of fleshly decision that they can't genuinely make in a spirit-filled way. They can't choose that which is good. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They must first be regenerate to have any interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so fleshly decisionism presents some semblance of Jesus Christ, but not the true Jesus Christ, some counterfeit of the gospel, but not the true gospel. And it's very, very appealing to the flesh. Therefore, we call it fleshly decisionism. Number three, we talked about spiritual ambition for spiritual achievement. There's some religious ambition in the heart of the person who says, I'm the evangelist. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get people into the kingdom. And so I'm going to do this method or I'm going to do that method with an absolute disinterest in what the scripture says with regard to what evangelism is. This person typically thinks he's better than the others he's evangelizing and infinitely better than the others that are not even evangelizing themselves. They set themselves on a pedestal over those who are not engaging in the activities that they are engaging in. It's really a form of legalism. And as I said last week, the person who is engaging in this kind of legalistic effort has slipped into the legalism that he hated in other people before he became a Christian and swore he would never engage in. So again, we refer to this as spiritual ambition for spiritual achievement. Number four, we talked about self-exalting condemnation. Self-exalting condemnation. I chose Jesus, why haven't you? With a complete dismissal of Jesus' words in John 15, 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. Number five, verbal combat. Verbal combat. This is walking around waving the flag of the Bible. And taking scripture passages and hammering people with them. 
just beating them. You know, why haven't you repented? What's wrong with you? You're going to hell. Why don't you just repent without any love or compassion? It's a verbal combat engaging in some kind of intentional battle for the sake of proving oneself right and his opponent wrong. Number six, we talked about workplace witnessing. Workplace witnessing, which is not what your boss is paying you to do. On the other hand, if that is what he's paying you to do, then do it. You say, well, I own the company. Good for you. Evangelize all you want. If you own the company, that's a whole different story. But if you work for somebody else who owns the company and they pay you to do a job, then do the job. Do the job. Let your witnessing be your conduct. Your love for Jesus Christ and your love for people will reveal itself in your hard work for your boss, which is ultimately not for your boss, but for the Lord. Colossians 3 tells us that knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. You're not paid to share the gospel. You're paid to do your job. Number seven, churchless preaching. Churchless preaching. You see, with a goal for anything other than participation in the local church, it is not evangelism. It's not evangelism. If so, what is it evangelism to, if not to the church? The guy who's out there running around, he's not connected to any local body, and if he is, it's a very distant and disconnected connection, if you can even call it that. But he's out there doing the work of the Lord, but he's under absolutely no spiritual authority. He probably has no real ability to actually engage in Bible teaching, but he thinks he's doing evangelism. And he actually, in many cases, considers himself to be spiritually better than those who are not doing what he is doing. Number eight, tract shoving. Tract shoving. Nothing wrong with tracts, as long as there's nothing wrong with a tract, right? If it's genuinely reflective of Scripture, specifically what the gospel is, then that's probably a good tract. And it probably has its place. But it doesn't replace what? A relationship. It doesn't replace a relationship. Why would someone, especially a, a gal waiting tables, you know, trying to keep her family afloat, be interested in what your little tract says, that, by the way, was a bait-and-switch effort to get her to think it was something that it's actually not, be interested in reading when you didn't even leave her a tip. Or if you left her a tip, it was a, you know, not really a very good tip. I say the person who leaves a really good tip, that's the person that's earned the credibility to leave a track. Right? You don't leave a track, double the tip. I have a good friend who's a waiter who told me just recently, that's a track I would read. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? More often than not, though, the gospel tract simply salves the conscience of the person passing it out as well as the person receiving it. And again, I did not say always. And maybe you've never done that. And you pass tracts out all the time. Praise God. That's great. If you're using them in a legitimate and sound and Christ-magnifying purpose, then keep doing it. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about tract shoving. We're not dismissing the certain value of a well-prepared, non-manipulative, biblically faithful gospel tract. So in conclusion from last week, we turned you to Proverbs chapter 9, starting with verse 7, that says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Many times, 
That which is done under the guise of evangelism is nothing more than a spiritual fight at best. If someone shows a disinterest in you and what you have to say, honor that person as according to 1 Peter 3.15, which says, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you to everyone who asks and with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence for the person. If somebody says, I don't want to talk to you, then walk away. Walk away. But the person who says, no, 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 this person needs to know Jesus. I'm going to stay in there. You just eliminated any hint of credibility. You clearly don't respect the person and have disobeyed the command of Scripture to respect and revere the person. Well, this morning, we talked then about God's purpose in evangelism. The title of the message is God's purpose and plan or evangelism, God's purpose and plan. That's what we're looking at. This morning we're going to look specifically at God's purpose. We want to begin with a focus on the primary or fundamental purpose of God in evangelism. And admittedly, admittedly, there's much overlap regarding his purpose and his plan. You can't really discuss one without discussing the other. But we're going to highlight God's purpose this morning. You might be surprised about some things that are not God's purpose in evangelism. A lot of times uh, when people misunderstand the purpose, they misunderstand the plan. So we want to lay this foundation so that next week when we discuss God's plan for evangelism, you can see how we as a church are implementing what we understand to be that plan. What is evangelism? What is it? We've talked about some things that it is not. There is God's plan, and in order to understand his plan, we first want to understand and rest in his purpose. When you know his purpose and plan for evangelism, you will have the discernment and the confidence in that purpose and plan to know what to do to be part of it and what not to do. Right? You ever struggle with, you know, do I talk to this person? You know, he looks like he needs the Lord. Do I go over there? Do I say something? Do I give him money? Do I give him a trap? What do I do? How can you develop the confidence and the humble respect for others in order to know when to share the gospel and when not to. Really, ultimately, what we're talking about here is developing discernment. That's our desire. We want to cultivate discernment through the faithful teaching of the Scripture. You want to know what biblical evangelism is and how to implement it in your life and do so effectively? Look at the Bible. That's it. That's where we go for evangelism. And in our culture, as you probably know, there are those who have the appearance of going to the Bible and yet aren't really in an effort to determine how to engage in evangelism. And instead what they do is some pragmatic effort to get as many people in the door as they possibly can. You say, well, what's wrong with reaching as many people as you possibly can? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you want to do that. We want to do that. But our effort is to reach them with the gospel, not some other message. And then once we get them in the door, we flip the channel and say, oh, that's not really what we wanted to talk to you about. We didn't, we didn't really want to talk to you about entertainment. What we really wanted to talk to you about is the Lord. People know when they've been duped. So point number one in this two-point message, God's purpose in evangelism. 
So we need to look at this from the perspective of redemptive history, really beginning in eternity past. What exactly is this purpose? Some would say, well, the Bible says that God desires for no man to perish, so obviously his purpose in evangelism is for everyone to be saved. If that were the case, then everyone would be saved. See, this really cuts at the root of so many intentionally evangelistic ministries. That's what they say. We're here to see that the lost are saved. We want to reach as many people as we can. We want everyone to know the Lord Jesus Christ. See, those aren't wrong statements in and of themselves. We feel the same way. We want to see as many people come to Christ as possible. We want to reach the lost. We don't want to watch as people ignore the gospel and spend eternity in torment. We don't want that. That's not God's ultimate purpose in evangelism. And I know that might offend and really cut at the heart of what you have believed evangelism is. If it's not that, then what is it? Well, let me say that that is part of it. Right? We evangelize because we want people to know Christ. We want people to spend eternity worshiping Jesus Christ and knowing Him and having peace in this lifetime. We want them to have abundance in this lifetime. We want them to have fullness of spiritual involvement in the church. What is, though, the purpose Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. There are really two passages in the Bible that distinctly say this is the purpose. There are plenty of passages in the scripture that undergird that message. But we're going to take you to some passages that distinctly declare this is the purpose. And this is one of them. In Ephesians 1, starting with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the doctrine of election. Some have said it is the most hated doctrine in all of the church. I believe that it is the most important doctrine in all of the church. I believe it is the most comforting, the most soothing, the most penetrating, the most motivating doctrine in all the Bible. Because it displays the reality that God is in control And he loves his children. He is a God of sovereign grace. And you, like me, if not today, then at least at some point in your life in the past, came across this doctrine in the Bible and you said, I don't like this. This doesn't fit with my theology. You may have even said, my God would never choose some and not others. And by making that declaration, you've drawn a line in the sand and you you have separated yourself from the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible has done just that. He has chosen some and not all. And if you're still not convinced, I trust that if you will humbly submit yourself to the truth of the scripture, that this morning you will be. Not by my persuasion. It's not my effort. It's not my desire. But let me, let me plead with you 
to not be the person who pits the Bible against the Bible. Don't be the person who says, yeah, I see that, but guess what else I see in the Bible? You see, a genuine and honest perspective of the scripture recognizes that it does not contradict itself. And so, yes, yes, the scripture says that all those who come unto Christ will be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. We don't dismiss that. We lean every bit as heavily on that as we do the passage I just read. But to dismiss here what Paul is saying because God has instructed him to say it in light of what God has said elsewhere is to have an obvious and debilitating misunderstanding of the word of God. God does not contradict himself. And so where you and I look at certain doctrines and we say, I don't understand how that adds up. It's not that God doesn't know what he's talking about. It's that you and I don't know what he's talking about. And so what do we do? We subject ourselves humbly to the Spirit of God to give us discernment under sound teaching to rightly understand what he has said so we can know how to be faithful to him. Rather than looking at a doctrine that's clearly in the Bible and saying, I don't like it. Let's move on. Turn the page. The well-known heretic John Hagee has declared that the doctrine of election is in the Bible. But if the doctrine, these are his words, if the doctrine of election is true, then God is unkind and unreasonable. You believe that? There are too many people, there are many people who are on the spiritual stage today who belittle the significance of the doctrine of election because they're attempting to gain credit for what happens in people's lives spiritually. They don't want God to have the credit They themselves want to have credit. Move with me to verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you didn't catch that in the previous section of scripture we read, Paul's repeated it for you twice. What is God's purpose in evangelism? It's his glory. It's his glory. That God's greatness would be on display. Now in practical terms, let me say it for you this way. When evangelism results in the salvation of a lost soul, when it really happens, when it truly happens, when it's not the the result of a fleshly decision that doesn't, by the way, result in salvation, right? When someone is actually saved, God is glorified. His glory is on display because, listen, something has been accomplished that only he can do. In a man-centered, man-focused, man-designed, man-driven theology, man deserves the credit for something he has done because it's actually something he has done. He has persuaded another man to do something, but it's only done in the flesh, so God doesn't get the glory, and God shouldn't get the glory for that because it's not salvific. Nothing has taken place in the heart of that man except he has embraced some form of manipulative message that's enticed him to do something different with his life. That doesn't glorify God. What glorifies God? 
that which is according to the counsel of his will. You say, I don't like that. Well, you keep reading Ephesians 1. And I trust that you'll eventually grow to like it. And we should like it. We should be happy. We should be joyous. We should be overcome with gratitude that God has given this to us in his word. And we ought to be motivated by it to love him more deeply. This is to the praise of his glory. Verse 13 in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Many have referred to this as a spiritual down payment. It's a good term. Because it helps us understand that what we have now is that down payment for what we will have eternally. That God himself has given us the Holy Spirit. He resides in us. He brings us conviction. He brings us encouragement. He brings us strength. He enables us to understand his word according to 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man who is not indwelt by the Spirit of God does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot discern them. So you and I come across a doctrine like this in the scripture and we say this is hard. This is hard. This attacks my pride. It destroys my spiritual achievements. But because the Spirit of God indwells me, He is the down payment on my eternal rest. He gives me wisdom. He gives me discernment. He gives the ability to sit under sound teaching and to embrace this because I see it in the Scripture. And so, as difficult as it is, I believe it because I see it in God's Word. The unbeliever says, so much emphasis on that. Why don't we just talk about other things? This is the foundation of everything we believe. God's sovereignty. John 3.16, as I read to you earlier, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 then says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Do you believe that world means every single person in the world? If you do, if you believe that cosmos means every single person in the world, and if you also believe verse 17, which by the way uses that word, then what you must believe then is that every single person in the world, if world means every single person in the world, that every single person in the world will be saved. World does not mean every single person in the world. It means some throughout the world. And if you read the book of Revelation, you will see that there will be some from every tongue and tribe and nation. So all throughout the world, there will be those who will certainly be saved. But this passage by no means disputes what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1. God does love the world. And his special love for some in the world will certainly result in their salvation. But not every single person in the world. Otherwise, verse 17 would be untrue. But you see, that unbiblical approach to John 3.16, that unbiblical deduction reveals a man-made, man-centered theology and an unawareness of that passage as well as the primary intent revealed in the Word of God. Let's continue to look at the words of Jesus in the book of John. To have a better understanding of how all this works. In John 3 verse 1. Many of you are very familiar with the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. The story goes like this. 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This is a very well-educated man. He was considered to be the highest of rabbis, the most educated, the best taught, the best teacher. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus uses an illustration here that every one of us has experienced. You feel the wind. You recognize its value. But you have no idea where it came from. You weren't looking for it. You weren't doing anything to bring it to you. And you don't know what happened to it when it departed. This is the work of the Spirit of God. You did nothing to bring it unto yourself. Nothing. You don't know how it works. You weren't looking for it. But you recognized it. You felt the value of it. You recognized that this is a different message, maybe from what you've heard before. Probably the message you've heard up prior to that in every instance with some sort of works system. You do this and Jesus will give you this. You know, some rewards, favor type system. Jesus says it's like the wind. Spirit of God is like the wind. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, Nicodemus didn't get this like you and I didn't get this the first time we heard it, the first time we had some inkling of an idea of this. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Really, Nicodemus? Is that, is that the condition of Israel? That the teacher doesn't understand that salvation is from God and not something that man can contrive? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. See that? It's 1 Corinthians 2 again. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot discern them. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, you have a devotion to Moses, but you don't recognize the whole point of Moses' life. Jesus must be exalted. 
only through Jesus and believing in him may someone have eternal life. So you see who gets the glory? Who gets the glory then? If the Spirit comes as the wind without any solicitation, who gets the glory? The person who receives the Spirit? No. God gets the glory. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May He experience blessing. Peter's words to the Christians to whom he writes, who according to His great mercy has, listen to this, caused us to be born again. You ever heard that evangelistic plea? You need to be born again. Well, it's not a, it's not a wrong thing to tell somebody. But if you leave it in their hands, you know, to figure out what that means, and you entrust their salvation to them, choose to be born again, that person is going to be as confused as Nicodemus. And I'm not even talking so much about the metaphor. So what do I do? Go back into my mother's womb? That's not what I mean. I mean that the metaphor makes no sense. They've got nothing by which they could understand it. There's no capacity for truth. Telling someone to be born again, what does that even mean? Peter says, we've been caused to be born again. I want to illustrate this for you, something that all of you know something about. Um, Has anybody been physically born in this room? Okay, all of you, good. Even though you're too fearful to raise your hands. So, uh, yeah, good. So, All of you know what that is. I've been in the presence of four births, my own four children. And as I watched, without fail, none of them ever did anything to make that happen. I can't imagine my my firstborn uh, in the womb saying, you know, I, I think it's time. I've been in this watery mess long enough. I'm going to hop on out of here and just make my parents' lives miserable. <laughs> right? Of course not. And that's the point. That's the point. That's why the scripture uses this metaphor, this illustration. And what have we been caused to be born again unto? Listen to this. I love this. Back to 1 Peter 3. We're still in verse 3. To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We've been caused to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where your hope is. It is that he conquered sin and death and was resurrected unto new life and according to Romans 6 so that you would walk in newness of life. And how many people do you know who engaged in some sort of fleshly decision and never walked in newness of life? Or if they did, they did it for a very short period of time and it went away. And the interest was lost. Peter goes on. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. It cannot perish. An inheritance that cannot die. In other words, you can't lose it. We refer to this as the perseverance of the saints. That which has been granted to you cannot be taken away. You didn't achieve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't choose it. But think of it. In a man-centered theology, that which you choose, if you're going to be consistent, is that which you can reject. 
I've had a few people tell me this. I just decided to stop being a Christian. I didn't like it. Well, I would understand why you wouldn't like an unbiblical Christianity that you chose and therefore rejected. Yeah, you can lose that salvation. And by the way, it's not, a, it's not so much an issue of whether or not you can lose your salvation. Biblically speaking, what we're talking about is perseverance. The person who perseveres is the one who is known to have been caused to be born again because the inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who, by the way, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Your faith doesn't go away. It can be obscured. It can be tainted in appearance. You cannot kill that which God has granted. It should give you hope. It should give you strength. On the other hand, if you say, I've never experienced that, then you must rethink whether or not you are a Christian. See, the person who pridefully responds to that suggestion says, oh, how dare you say that, is taking credit for something he probably deserves credit for. Because it didn't result in God's glory. It wasn't a work of God. It was a work of man. I chose Jesus. I'm walking with him. I'm being faithful. That's the defensive response of the false believer. On the other hand, if we we would be honest about our physical birth, you know, know, let me tell you how great my physical birth was because I'm I'm really amazing. (laughs) Let me just tell you. If you forget, I'll tell you again. That's silly. Why would we do that with spiritual birth? So common today, though. So common. Back to John. John 6. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will never cast them out. I will never turn them away. All that the Father gives gives to me, will come to me. This is a doctrinal statement in and of itself. It's power-packed theology. Who will come to me? All that the Father gives to me. And I will never cast them out. Why? Father gave them to me. Father gave them to me. Can't cast them out. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. Do you love that? That's not the basis of our evangelism. That is our evangelism. The basis is that all that the Father gives to the Son will come unto Him. So what do we do? We share the message that all who believe in Him will be saved. That's the plan to kind of give you a heads up for next week. Verse 44, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
It's the other side of the coin. What about the person who, who is not of the elect, but he wants to come to the Father? He wants to come to the Son. That person doesn't exist. You say, no, no, I know somebody who's not of the elect. How do you know that? You don't know that. We lean heavily on the words of Spurgeon who told us, you know, if God gave us the ability by writing the letter E on someone's back, we could lift up their shirt and see who are of the elect. But we don't have that ability. So we don't engage in any kind of, kind of effort to understand that. You say, but what if they want to know the Lord and they're not of the elect? They don't exist. You don't have to worry about that. That's a speculation that God says in 2 Corinthians 10, we're destroying. We destroy those speculations and all lofty thoughts brought up against God. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. This is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. That which of the, of the flesh is of no profit. But see, friends, the, the theological catastrophe that takes place in so many people's lives and in so many churches' doctrinal efforts is to pit these two truths against each other. And so there then ensues this unnecessary spiritual battle between those who are committed to more reformed theology and those who are not. It doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. We should lean with utter and complete dependence, with humble confidence, humble confidence in God's sovereign grace. We trust in him that he has determined whom he would save and we don't know who they are until he saves them. And so we endeavor to share truth with all those who would listen. Verse 65, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's not difficult to understand. It's, it's difficult to believe. What I mean by that is to understand how that could be is only in the mind of the Lord. Only the Lord fully comprehends this. Back to Ephesians 1, he has told us that this is according to the counsel of his will. That his purpose would be manifest. What is his purpose? His glory. He's God. He's in charge. This is about, this is about him unfolding his plan as according to his purpose. What about John 1, verse 12? Let's go back in the book of John. John 1, verse 12. What about that? To as many as received him. What about that? Lombano. It's an active verb. It's not a passive verb. To as many as received. He's involved. The person who receives him. He's willfully, wholeheartedly engaged in receiving Jesus Christ. That's, there's no other way to see it. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. What about that? I say keep reading. Keep reading. Who were born, 
not of blood. You understand that, right? Spiritual birth does not take place through physical interaction, physical vehicle of blood. The idea of blood is that there's a fleshly connection. You're of your parents' bloodline, your ancestors' bloodline. So it's not that. You understand that. That's clear. But in the same way and with equal truth, those who were born not of blood, also, nor the will of the flesh. Well, that's a little little easier than what he's about to say. I still get that. Not of the flesh, because the flesh is what? It's evil. The flesh is evil. So you're not born of blood, these people he's talking about, those who have received him and been given the right to become children of God. Not born of blood, but not born of flesh. The flesh is that, what I've often referred to as that spiritual appendicitis for the believer. It's always there and it's constantly poisoning you. And you keep attacking it and trying to address it and do something about it. And eventually you'll, you'll be resurrected with a new body and you won't have that anymore. But in the meantime, between now and then, you're constantly battling the flesh. The unredeemed humanity which stays with you until you go to heaven. So I get that. Being children of God is not a decision of the flesh. But then he says this. Nor of the will of man. That sounds like a contradiction. That sounds like a contradiction because he just... He just said to as many as received him. In order to understand this, you need to think chronologically. You need to think in terms of how things happen in order of process. To as many as received him. Why? To finish verse 13. But of God. But of God. This is not of blood, this birth. It's not of the flesh. It's not of the will of man. It is the will of God that causes man to receive him. There's no contradiction at all. And so the person who brings up verse 12 simply needs to keep reading verse 13 if he is convinced that somehow man is involved in his regeneration. What takes place first? Faith or regeneration? You can't have faith if you're dead. The person who is caused to be born again is the person who necessarily exercises faith. He believes in that by which God saved him. God's purpose is to glorify himself by redeeming the unredeemable. The just dying for the unjust. In Acts 13 verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who gets the glory? Romans 11 verse 2 tells us God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You say, right, he he knew in eternity past what they would do. You won't find that concept in the Bible. What you find in the Bible is that he foreknew them. 
This is the Greek term gnosko. It is an intimate knowledge. It is a pre-eternal or pre-temporal knowledge. And this is the knowledge of which Jesus speaks when he says to those who proclaim the things that they have done in Matthew 7 as evidence of their knowledge of God when Jesus says, depart from me for I never gnosko you. I never knew you. I never foreknew you. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, as referenced in Rome, uh, Revelation 13 and Revelation 17, He foreknew you. In Ephesians 5, 24, we see a further display of God's purpose in practice. What is God's purpose in evangelism? In order for us to think rightly about a plan of evangelism, we must understand His purpose. We've already said it plainly. We've shown it to you over and over and over. God's purpose is to glorify Himself. How does He do that? How does He do that? I'm not even talking so much about the plan yet. We'll get to that next week. But He glorifies Himself by extending His purifying love to the bride of Christ to present her to Him one day. In Ephesians 5, 24, Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, this is evidence of the fact that the person who is of the elect, the person who is chosen of God, the person who is redeemed by God, the person who is in Christ, being part of the bride of Christ, is interested in holiness. He's not interested in pretending to be holy and living a double life and keeping his sin secret. He's interested in honest holiness. In Revelation 19, verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In this text, you have a depiction of that marriage that will take place between those who are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and Christ himself. Those who are the bride of Christ will be presented 
to him the bridegroom as a stainless, spotless gift. See, the person who is of the bride of Christ longs for that purity. He lives his life for Christ. He's devoted to Christ. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. See, Paul says it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you at the, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. For what? For sanctification. For cleansing. Brothers, we can thank God for you because your life reveals that sanctifying work that God does in the life of those who are of the elect. Philippians 1.6 God will complete what He began. He began a work that He will complete. How does He complete that? By sanctifying those who are of the elect. Their lives are devoted to purity. They love Christ because Christ has loved them. You say, well, what about Matthew 28? Isn't Matthew 28 kind of our mission statement as the New Testament local church? It sure is. Let's look there. Matthew 28, starting with verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Why? He's worthy. He's worthy. He's already told them, you did not choose me, I chose you. Because of that, they worship him. But it says some doubted. There's still those who were doubtful. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. I don't have to tell you this, but I'm going to slip it in here. This is why our church is devoted to discipleship. This is why. This is the mission. That we, as the disciples of Jesus Christ, would worship Him. That's why we've told you. For you to be involved in any ministry in our church starts with discipleship. This is the mission. The mission is not going out and getting people to make decisions. It's bringing people into discipleship. So Jesus finishes this book, the book of Matthew, with this command. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Who gets the glory? See, God gets the glory. If we baptize men in some sort of flippant fashion, baptizing anybody and everybody who says, hey, I'd like to be baptized. We can't do that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we baptize those who are devoted to sanctification. We baptize those who worship Jesus Christ. And we are to teach them to observe all that He's commanded us. That's what it says in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
He is with us. He does reside in our hearts, if you want to put it that way. He's with us. He's our motivator. He is the one who would have us do what we would do in evangelism. And it comes through teaching. Again, that's why we put the emphasis we do on discipleship. So is that your purpose when you engage in evangelism? God's glory. That you would present a message that is unhearable to those who do not hear. That is unseeable to those who do not see. That you would present a message that is an unbelievable message. It's impossible for the unregenerate mind to believe the message of the gospel. Is that the message that you deliver? Do you call people to holiness? And do you call them to holiness in gentleness yourself? Or do you beat them with it? Is that your purpose when you engage in evangelism? That God's glory would be on display. You see, if this is your purpose in evangelism, you will have no problem with God's plan for evangelism. But if your purpose is something other than God's glory in evangelism, You're going to embrace all kinds of man-made trickery to get people to make fleshly decisions. And guess what? It'll work. It'll work. And no one will be saved by it. It's not getting them sort of moving in the right direction. It's sealing them in the wrong direction to encourage fleshly thinking and fleshly decisions. You see, the purpose drives the plan. It's the foundation of the plan. If you know the purpose, you can rest in that as you naturally, as we look at the scripture together, understand the plan. There's no need to develop another plan as it would simply miss the mark of fulfilling the purpose. God's given us the plan. You say, well, what if I'm not of the elect? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. What if I'm not of the elect? Then what do I do? Let me just say, if you weren't, you wouldn't care. But now let's talk about what Peter says. 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. See that? Brethren, make sure you're of the elect. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. You say, oh, okay, okay, what's he talking about though? What things? What does he mean when he says, as long as you practice these things, what things? Back up to verse 5. In fact, let's go all the way back to verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Stop there for a minute. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's what you need to know and remember at any point in your life when you're engaging in any kind of wrong heart attitude. Where do we go to engage in godliness, godly thinking, godward thoughts, Things which honor God result in His glory and our blessing. Right here. Remember it. You have everything pertaining to life 
and godliness, in the true knowledge of him. And where is that true knowledge of him? It's in the scripture. That's the context of this chapter. The word of God. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You see that? Again, this is about his glory. He receives the glory through his calling. What he has done results in his exaltation. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You say, I can't control my lust. If that's a true statement, Peter's not talking about you. If you're in Christ, if you have received the new birth, if you are one who's Redemption results in the glory of Jesus Christ. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You you cannot say, and it is not true of you, that you cannot control your lust. But the person for whom it is genuinely true that he cannot control his lust is a person who has not escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You see that distinction? But too often we say, well, you know, this guy's got a real you know, problem with sexual misconduct. But when he was five, he prayed that prayer. You see the contradiction? You see the unbiblical thinking? So what he prayed a prayer when he was five? He's committed to sexual deviancy. He's not a Christian. And the, the least compassionate thing we could do is give him affirmation because his prayer when he was five... No, we look to see whether or not he has engaged in these things that Peter says are the characteristics of somebody who's of the elect. So verse 5. These are the things that he's talking about in verse 10 where he says, Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things. Okay, this is the list. Back in verse 5, these, these are the things. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence. It's hard work. person who's in Christ, he works hard. He works hard. Specifically in study of the scripture. He wants to know what the Bible says. And Peter applies it more specifically. and says, in your faith, supply moral excellence. You know, don't, don't claim to have faith in Jesus Christ with disregard for moral excellence. Well, I can do these things. You know, God will forgive me. That's not moral excellence. He goes on. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Knowledge of the word. Know the word. Know it increasingly. You know, I remember one time I was teaching a Bible study and this guy held up one of these big, thick study Bibles and I was talking about this. And he said, he said man, there's, there's a lot of stuff in here. And I said, yeah, so start somewhere. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. Know the word. Chip at a time. A little bit at a time. And in your knowledge, self-control. Self-control, if you look at the the, um, fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, self-control is the safety net. It's the last in the list. You know, when you don't have the strength or the ability to engage in gentleness or patience or those things, what do you do? You exhibit self-control. And the way I would say it to men is, men, be a man. Be a man. Don't give in to the fleshly indulgences that exhibit a weak faith. 
Engage in self-control. Think of your family. Think of the church. Think of Christ. Exercise self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. Don't give up. And in your perseverance, godliness. Think about God. That's what that means. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Have you forgotten that? See, if you forget your purification from your former sins, you won't have any interest in these things, and you will struggle with whether or not you're of the elect. But if these are, in fact, your priorities and you're devoted with diligence on a daily basis to embrace these practices, you won't be fighting that battle of whether or not you're of the elect. So then verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Abundantly supplied. So you say, well, all right, so God's sovereign in all this. Why why evangelize? It's the greatest investment you'll ever make. To be involved in God's work and to do it faithfully and to see the chains thrown off and the blinders come off and the ears open and the eyes open so that people understand the value, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. People that are not simply looking for some sort of fire insurance policy from hell, but they actually are in, in deep devotion to Jesus Christ and love Him. It's the greatest investment you'll ever make. And by the way, because of the doctrine of election, there are guaranteed results. There's a guaranteed return. We engage in faithful evangelism. God will use that to glorify himself and to present the pure bride of Jesus Christ to him for his glory. John Calvin, when presented the question, what do I do if I, I think I'm not of the elect? Responded with these words. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we give you thanks. Because you are worthy. You've told us in Romans 1 that it is a thankless attitude that leads to a debased mind that you would turn man over to his depravity starts with man's willingness to be thankless for who you are and what you have done and results in all kinds of immorality that are unspeakable. So Father, help us in these moments to be thankful, to express our thanks to you, to to cry out to you really with a, a, a grateful spirit in song as we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. God, we thank you for this privilege, and it's in Jesus' name that we exalt you. Amen.